Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people with Brad Listy. That's me. You can hear me. In this podcast, while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it. It's free. It takes just a few seconds. And then during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. And where it says that, enter other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks cash money. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a lot of other amazing content as well, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge. Get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. right. Okay, you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is what nerd folk listen to. This is not presented in Dolby Stereo Surround Sound. Thanks for being here. It's good to be with you. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. And uh, what am I doing? I'm, I'm procrastinating. I've been procrastinating all night. I was supposed to do this uh, like hours ago. And then I uh, found myself getting sucked into the internet. And I was just reading this uh, profile of Fiona Apple. So I don't even know how it happened. It was like I was somewhere online and then I clicked on something and then I saw something and then I clicked on something else. And uh, next thing you know, I'm reading this profile of Fiona Apple from about a year ago in New York Magazine. Very well done by a, a guy named Dan Lee. And, you know, he was, it was like basically like a press junket for her album. She was talking to him at this hotel. It's the typical celebrity profile. But uh, it becomes better than that because they become friendly. 
uh, Dan and Fiona, they, they get high together. They drink together. They have these really like candid Fiona Apple like conversations in uh, New York and Los Angeles. And, uh, I don't know. I find Fiona interesting. I find her moving and I really like the music. Or, you know, like, let me put it to you this way. There are like very few musicians or bands that like, whenever they put a new record out, I, I automatically go buy it immediately. I automatically go buy it immediately. You know what I'm saying? And, and this is increasingly the case. I just can't keep up with music like I used to just as like a function of age and circumstance. But, uh, whenever Fiona puts out a record, I always get it right away. Like, is that weird? I don't know. I just think she's a really good writer and I think her music is really, uh, you know, interesting. And I think she's a great lyricist, which is what I'm, you know, I'm often drawn to in music and she's obviously very bright and very perceptive and she's very strange and strangely honest and complicated. And I don't know, that's the, I don't know what the formula is, but I find it, uh, appealing the music and I find her moving. <laughs> like I worry about her. I just read this thing and I'm like worried. Like, is she okay? <laughs> and then I start thinking like, is she mentally ill? You know, not that we all aren't just, you know, a little bit mentally ill, but I, I find myself thinking, you know, are people who find her fascinating, like, like myself, are we simply cannibalizing her afflictions as entertainment? Is that what's happening? I hope that's not the case. I don't think it is with me. I mean, I really do like the music. And, you know, it's, it's very confessional music. And so if you, if you followed her through the years and you know a little bit of the backstory, then the songs become this kind of continuing narrative. So I was like, you know, I was graduating college back in 1997, 96, 97. That was when she was just starting out and she was just like a teenager. She's like 18 years old. And, uh, it feels like a hundred years ago. Musically speaking, 1997, I still had cassette tapes back then. <laughs> I think I was one of the last people in America to give up cassette tapes. I had hundreds of them. So, uh, anyway, in this profile, there's some discussion of Fiona Apple's quasi legendary, uh, acceptance speech at the MTV music awards. Do you guys remember this? Were you alive when this happened? How old are you? Uh, it's kind of euphemistically known as the this world is bullshit speech. I don't know if that rings a bell. And I was reading about it, uh, and I could remember seeing it, you know, back in the day. I remember watching it on live television, and I remember feeling uh, uncomfortable. <laughs> You know, but it was, you know, uncomfortable in the way that I almost always feel whenever I watch any award show of any kind. And I should confess here that I do love to watch award shows. I always have as spectacle. As much as I hate them, I love to watch them as like a human crucible. As live television drama. You know, it's an insane cultural ritual 
but it's crudely fascinating. And so uh, I went, after reading about this, I went and I watched it, and then I managed to dig up the audio of this speech online, which I thought I would play here just for fun and for the purposes of clarity and uh, illumination. So here is Fiona Apple back in 1997 uh, at like the age of 19 or 20, something like that. And she's just won an MTV Music Award on national television. Okay, so here she is. I didn't prepare a speech, and I'm sorry, but I'm glad that I didn't because I'm not going to do this like everybody else does it. Because um, everybody that I should be thanking, I'm really sorry, but I have to use this time. See, Maya Angelou said that we, we as human beings, at our. <laughs> All right, uh, it's a, you know that was a little weird, but just stay with me. Maya Angelou said that we, we as human beings, at our best, can only create co- opportunities. And I'm going to use this opportunity the way that I want to use it. So what I want to say is, um, everybody out there that's watching, everybody that's watching this world, this world is bull****. And you shouldn't model your life. Wait a second. You shouldn't model your life about what you think that we think is cool and what we're wearing and what we're saying and everything. Go with yourself. Go with yourself. And there's just a few people that I want to say something to. I want to say, Mama, I love you. I'm so glad that we're becoming friends. Amber, I love you. You're my sister. You're my best friend. Andrew Slater, no one else could have produced this album and no one else did. Um, And it's just stupid that I'm in this world, but you're all very cool to me, so thank you very much. And I'm sorry for all the people that I didn't thank, but man, it's good. Bye. I don't know. It's an unrehearsed speech, obviously, which I like. I like that it's off the cuff. I hate when someone like writes it down, you know, and, uh, and it's messy. That's the thing. Like Fiona Apple is messy. That's what makes her compelling. She's willing to be a mess in public and she always has been just sort of resolutely unpolished and unscripted. And, uh, you know, I think it's sort of courageous in a way. Might be a little nuts, but it's also, I mean, it's courageous. There's some courage involved. And, you know, over the years from uh, time to time, whenever uh, I would read about this uh, speech that she made, or I would talk about it with somebody, you know, not that this happened all that often, but whenever it came up, it seems like it was always in the context of like, uh, that was crazy or she went nuts or whatever. That's how I remember it. And I mean, she did kind of go nuts. <laughs> the part about Maya Angelou. I don't know what the fuck that was, but, uh, you know, listening to it again, uh, the heart of the speech is dead on. That world is bullshit. <laughs> like the world of corporate music and red carpets and all of it. It's bullshit. I'm with Fiona. You know, it was a messy speech, but there was a, you know, a strong core of truth to it. Like there are, you know, there's a lot of bullshit in the world. There are a lot of bullshit worlds in the world. And very few people have the balls to be inside of a bullshit world. And to say that that world is bullshit while being in that world. (laughs) 
I, I want Adam Johnson uh, when he accepts his Pulitzer Prize for fiction. Like, has he has he done that yet? Is there a ceremony for that? Uh, I just want him to step up to the microphone and say this world is bullshit in so many words. <laughs> Can we make that happen? If anybody out there is listening and, and knows Adam Johnson, the uh, recently announced Pulitzer Prize winner for fiction, please tell him that I strongly advise him to give a uh, stunning variation of the Fiona Apple, this world is bullshit acceptance speech. Anyway, uh, I love Fiona. I don't care what anyone says. She can sing like a bird. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. My guest today is Tupelo Hassman. I'm very happy to have her here. Uh, her debut novel, Girl Child, was published last year by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux uh, to great critical acclaim, and it has now been published in paperback by Picador, uh, a terrific young writer and a very good person to talk with. So let's get to it. This is my conversation with Tupelo Hassman, and her novel, once again, is called Girl Child. <laughs> I am in Berkeley, California, according to the post office, but according to the tax office, I'm in Oakland. Mentally, I'm always in Oakland. That seems like, I feel, I feel like Berkeley is a great place. Is it a nice place to live or that area? It's, it's, where I am, it's a little too nice, I think, for me to be comfortable, but I can see the Golden Gate Bridge from the deck, and that's snazzy but it's really beautiful what do you mean it's too nice for you this is a very homogenized neighborhood and i haven't i've only lived here for about three months and it's the most by far homogenized neighborhood i've ever lived in also <laughs> um, the neighbors don't ask what i do for a living because presumably i don't work because i'm married so they ask what my husband does for a living which is fun but alarming Oh, you mean the people, is it like a neighborhood where like women don't work or something? Yeah, it is like that. 
Mm-hmm. So are you living in like some sort of fancy neighborhood? It's a very fancy neighborhood that we just kind of lucked into running this house here. And it's giving a giving me a taste of something I've never had before and probably won't want in the future. <laughs> Although I do love the view. Yeah, I mean, it sounds great. I, mean, I don't know. It's just such a beautiful part of the country. I love it out there, or up there, I should it say. It is. Um, and I'm in my dining room. I just came back from a trip to Los Angeles where... We did some book stuff, and I had a tiny baby shower. Not for a tiny baby, but like a small shower. Um, and my my area here is full of all the things I brought back. Wait. Weird things that I don't know how to use. Are you with child? I am. I'm a giant person. Oh, my God. How far along are you? Seven and a half months. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. A boy or a girl. But there's a lot of devices here that don't make any sense to me. I have no idea. <laughs> what, like Like breast pumps and stuff like that? I wish. No, there's th- there's this odd bassinet thing that seems like it's from a cartoon, and there's a high chair that has, I, from where I'm sitting, I can count eight buttons on it that do different things. <laughs> yeah, it's a big, it's a lot of gear. I mean, I have a, a two-and-a-half-year-old, so it's like, you know. Oh, yeah, so you know. You probably know how to work the high chair. Maybe. Eight buttons sounds a little <sighs> bit, in, that sounds a little bit involved, but I'm sure, you know, hopefully... It's easy to figure yeah. out, intuitively designed. But um, are you having a boy or a girl? Do you know? I don't know. It's going to be a surprise in the delivery room. I hope so. I feel like there's all we have a whole life for that, whatever that means, to screw with the baby's head. So, and our heads, and I'm just going to wait for that. Oh, really? See, my wife and I was like, there's going to be enough surprises in this process that like. Let's, oh. we, we don't we don't need one more. Like this is going to be That's a good attitude. Yeah. My <laughs> husband really wants to know, but he can't lie, which is a great trait in a husband. So he can't know. So right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What we did was we uh like on the very first day that we could know, we went to the doctor and I forget whatever test they do to tell you what the uh gender is and they uh we had them put it in an envelope. So they wrote like like the, oh. the nurse like wrote down girl like the Oscars or it's a girl yeah 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 because just because like I didn't want to find out like in the hallway I wanted it to be like a moment you know or something it just seemed <laughs> where did you go did you well this is the funny sto- this is the- no this is the funny story it was like this was daytime um, you know the the uh, obstetrician appointment or whatever it was and we had these elaborate plans like we're gonna get the envelope it's gonna be sealed. We're going to go out to a nice dinner. We're going to, you know, have a meal. And then, like, when dessert is, you know, we had this whole, I had this whole idea of how it was going to go. And then we got the envelope and we couldn't wait. And Oh, we, yeah. So we're, like, looking we're like looking through it. And then we wound up just going to, like, the mall and we ate at Houston's. <laughs> like seven, I don't know what that is, but it's, it's at the like, mall. It's an awesome, it's like one of those awesome chain restaurants that's, like, kind of dimly lit and smells like cedar. You know, I don't know. We, yeah. Yeah. But we just sat at the bar and opened it up, and we thought it was going to be a boy, and it was a girl. Oh, right. Okay. Wow. It's Yeah, it's hard not to find out. And they, they know. But I, what I've learned is that ultrasound technicians have this one point of power in their lives, really, which is getting to tell you the sex of your baby. I call it the sex of my baby. Isn't it the sex? Isn't the gender an indeterminate thing that the baby shares with you when they grow up? You know what? I I could be totally misusing that terminology. Sex and gender. Lots like, of people say it that way, but I yeah. say Boy we don't girl. know the gender. Gender's on a spectrum, right? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the ultrasound technicians, 
want to tell you so badly. It doesn't matter. I've, one of them I had to tell her three times I didn't want to know. Well, so. See, I would be a terrible ultrasound technician because it's really hard to not refer to the uh, embryo or the fetus with any kind of like uh, revealing pronoun. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yep, exactly. Your whole job with, with people who don't want to know is just to make sure that you're using it or the little one. Yeah, and to tell you when to look away. Right, right, right. So, As if I can tell what I'm looking at anyway. <laughs> do you? Yeah, it's really – by the way, I don't even know how those people see anything. It looks just like a blob to me, you know, when I was looking yeah. at it. I have no. I still uh, cry when I see it, but I don't know what I'm looking at. Is this your first child? It is. Oh wow. Okay. And do you have a? Are you? Do you have a sense of what it might be? Are you dreaming about a boy or a girl? Uh, for a while, recently, I've kind of felt like it's a girl, which makes me more nervous for everything we were just talking about about culture and and you know feminism. And it's not that I wouldn't try to raise a feminist boy. But it just seems more terrifying. Is it more terrifying? Are you terrified? Um, yeah. I, I would be terrified yeah. either way. I'm, I was terrified before she got here. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, no, but, you know, like having a kid, I, like the joke that I always make is, is uh, whenever someone tells me that they're going to have a kid is, and it's their first, as I say, welcome to a state of permanent fear. Uh, <laughs> just because... <laughs> Uh, you know, like like this is the thing, like the the going through the ultrasounds and the lead up to birth. Like nobody told me how terrifying all that is. Like every appointment, I'm like panicking and like all these tests. Really? And, I don't know. I mean, not like huh. not like full blown panic, but like there's a lot of like uncertainty and yeah. I like I just figured, yeah, oh, she's yeah. There's some there's some fear to it, but you know, it's like. I, I guess I just had it in my head that like, oh, you get pregnant and then the baby comes. <laughs> I, right. I, had, I had kind of like a disnified version of it all, and uh, you know, it's like it's just basically confronting the weight of the responsibility too, and um, it's a beautiful thing, but it's definitely a game changer. So you're saying it gets harder than the high chair? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, yeah, yes oh. and no. I mean, it's like it's so hard to I don't know. I'm no expert, but it's like there's so much great stuff that goes into it that it mitigates all the bad stuff. And it's like, yeah. it's biology at work, you know, like you're completely sleep deprived and you're, you know, your kid is wailing and you're just like on the edge. But then like, you know, two minutes later, he or she will smile at you and then that's it. And then like your biology kicks in and it, you just, you know, you just do it. I don't know. Exactly. That's good. So, uh, well, I'm happy for you. And uh, on the record, I, I'm going to put you on the record as saying you think it's a girl so we can find out, you know, later. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then I want to ask you, uh, before uh, we went on the air, you were telling me that you were waiting for a phone call from your dentist? No, my dentist called right before you called, and I had to answer because I wasn't quite sure it was my dentist. You know, I thought maybe you had come to the Bay Area. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> why, is your, why is your dentist calling you? I have to go, to, I have to go there, you know, get a checkup. Oh, okay. But you I hate it. It's so abnormal. I don't think any other creature stands for that kind of treatment, really. Without being tied down or sedated. See, I'm I'm weird. I don't mind the dent. I've never minded the dentist at all. Like I can fall asleep in a dental chair while I'm getting like a cavity filled. <laughs> yeah, that's absurd. It's absurd. That's but I, I just I, those chairs to me are very comfortable, and I'm usually I don't know. There's nothing you can do. I just kind of go slack jawed and surrender. Oh, I don't know much about that surrendering, <laughs> but I have to go. Does that change anything? I've already been dreading it for a week, and I, you know, it's just a checkup. It's just a checkup, okay. And there's nothing like we. There's nothing that changes for a woman 
um, who's expecting. Oh, yeah, there is. You want to talk about that? It's gross. Really? Um, yeah, gross. Yay, let's talk about it. Um, the Your gums, because everything swells. Like, I can't really hear right now. And I had a, an appointment with my doctor yesterday, and she said, I, I, I had decided I'm going deaf. And she said that it's normal because as all the vessels in your body swell, that includes your ear gear, whatever that is called. Anyway, so your gums get really sensitive and like horror movie bloody pretty easily. <laughs> uh, this is uh, this is taking interesting turns. Uh, so yeah, you didn't. Maybe your wife has fantastic teeth or something, but it's it's kind of alarming well no you know you guys in all fairness like you guys go through a lot uh physically i mean like i don't know it's it's hardcore man carrying a child it really it really is i don't know if it's i can not do a it. joke i can't see my feet <laughs> um and like this last month you know you're you're rounding into the last month and the last month as i recall was when uh, because you know the second trimester it's sort of like the happy part of pregnancy you're sort of like cute pregnant and then like then it gets to like the end and you're just like ready to have the baby out of you and you can't like, I've heard that I, I have to say since I started the last trimester I've kind of felt a little better than I did before but I don't know I don't know why I'm maybe I'm just weird yeah I just remember my wife like not being able to kind of like a turtle like not being able to roll over and yeah I can't roll over that is really hard <laughs> Um, it's debilitating, honestly. <laughs> um, so I want to ask you about your name. I got to do that because I, I think. It's oh a, yeah, I think my it's a, name. I think it's a lovely name, and uh, I'm curious to know how you got it. Thank you. My parents were stoned out of their minds. No, um, my parents were probably stoned out of their minds. They were <laughs> Van Morrison fans, so they named me after the Van Morrison song "Tupelo Honey," which is also the name of an album. Do you know that song? Oh yeah. Yeah, so, and then Tupelo is a kind of tree, and the bees pollinate the tree, and Tupelo honey is rightfully more expensive than other honey because it never turns into that crystally weirdness that you can't get out of the jar. Is that, okay, can you tell me what that is? Because I have that sometimes, and I've always wondered, like, why why does that happen? It's just, you're, you're, if you leave it there too long, it eventually crystallizes? Yeah, but I went to a book, I had a book thing on a beef, on a... At the home of someone who owns a, an apiary last week, which is still blowing my mind, because <laughs> to get really tangential, so Sylvia Plath's dad was a beekeeper. Do you, you might you might know that. Oh, of course, everybody knows that. <laughs> well, so um, so I somehow always associated bees with writers and in drama, and so I, anyway, I stayed at the home of an, an apiarist last week in San Luis Obispo and it's fantastic. She has 300,000 bees and makes all this stuff and was expecting another shipment of bees. She used the phrase, we're getting a shipment of bees on Friday and all the bees come from Texas. Anyway, um, she said that that's, it's just because the honey ages and you just warm it up and it'll turn to liquid again. But the thing about Tupelo honey is it, it never does that. Weird. Do you know why? Is it, yeah. It's got to be some sort of scientific thing, just like the molecules of the... <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah. I, I know it costs more. Sometimes I buy it as presents for people because I'm super egocentric. No, <laughs> <I'd>, <laughs> it sounds really weird. But, um, but it's kind of expensive, but it really is, it really is a superior honey in that way. 
Okay. And so were your parents, you said, were, were your parents hippies? They were Van Morrison fans? Yeah. Counterculture? Yeah, they, they really were. They were, they were often high. And then um, before my dad died, I was in my early 20s, and Van Morrison was touring with Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell, and I can still remember standing in line outside of a Tower Records or something that doesn't exist anymore probably to buy tickets because that's how you used to buy tickets, right? Yeah. And it was more money than I had ever spent on anything. And I got my dad and I tickets. We went to the concert, and Van Morrison played To Blow Honey, and my dad and I held hands, and we cried, and it was worth every penny. Oh, my God. So where now? Where, know, huh? where, where were you raised? You, were you raised up in Northern California? I was born in Santa Cruz, but I moved around a lot. We That concert took place in L.A., where I lived for 10 years. Okay, so you used to live down here. Where did you live in L.A.? I lived in Venice for eight years and Koreatown, and when I first got there, I lived in Culver City. Okay, okay. And so, um, born in Santa Cruz, your parents are hippies. Like, what did they do? Were they art, uh, artist people, or were they... Oh, no, they were, they were not, they were not as successful, <laughs> successful hippies. My dad was a machinist. He was in the Navy, and he was a machinist apprentice in the Navy, and then he had a sheet metal and machining shop. And somehow he came out of the Navy really just as square as he went into it. But when he he was about six or seven years out and he found himself, and the himself that he found was much more relaxed than the Navy guy. <laughs> That's kind of a cool trajectory, though. Like I sometimes, I don't know, I, I, I sort of like the idea of somebody like who, who had formerly led this really like, you know, militarized existence. Yeah. Know, becoming sort of like the dude or whatever. You know, I like that. Yeah, he was he was very cool. He was a, he was a good friend. So you guys got along. Happy childhood? Oh no. I had a horrible childhood, but <laughs> my parents <laughs> my parents were nice people. They maybe were terrible parents, but um they were good good nice people. So what was it just like they um I don't know. What like what was it when you say they were terrible parents? They just weren't attentive or they didn't want the responsibility or what? They were just partying a lot. And and also I do have siblings but they were all grown, so so I was kind of an only child and you know how that can happen where you become just the third adult in the household. Yeah. And because I was kind of smart, um they academically smart, they they were very hands off because I think especially in our culture they feel like, oh, our work is done. She's succeeding in this strange world. So I I didn't know. Uh, there was no discipline or anything. I did whatever I wanted. Okay, so how does that work out? Because I didn't have that. Like I had, not that my parents... You didn't were, have that. No, well, not that my parents were super hardcore disciplinarians, but like my parents are Southern traditional people. I got grounded when I was a kid. I was expected to do my homework. I had a curfew. Do you know what I'm saying? Like a, yeah. Sort of this, like, yeah, I got grounded once for one day. Um, for what? I stayed, I didn't, it was the night of my first kiss. Oh, this, here we go. I'm just telling you everything. Uh, the night of my first kiss, and I could go out anywhere as long as I had to call my mom who worked nights and just say, I'm going here, and then call her when I got home. And I didn't because I knew I was going to go get kissed. So I had this, I was so not cool. This is how I became a better liar than my husband. Um, so I didn't call her, and then she called, and got worried and when I got home I was with some girlfriends all of our moms were there it was doom and uh 
and I got grounded for one day. That was all she could muster. But um, my husband also grew up with rules in the house, and now that we're having a child, we're trying to figure out how to, you know, what's the middle ground there. It's so confounding to me. I have no idea what it's like to have schedules or rules in the house, really. Uh, You know, I think... When it comes to that, to me, like there's people who read like endless books about how to be. I haven't read a single book, and not, yeah. not that I mean I don't mean to thump my chest too loudly about that because maybe that makes me a fool. But like I think <laughs> I think a lot of <laughs> no, but I mean like there's a part of me that just I start to go crazy because everyone's got an opinion. You know, it's like they sure do. It's sort yeah, of it's, it's sort of similar to uh, diet books, books about like what we're supposed to eat, or like even like medical research. It's always contradicting itself, and so I think like ultimately you just have to take a deep breath and, um, you know, if you've got a decent brain, just go with your intuition and do your best. Right. Yeah. And I suppose the child has an influence how they seem to be. And by the way, my first kiss was disgusting. I would it? never. It was. I was already punished. <laughs> like, oh. Did you have braces or anything like that? Was there like anything? No, no, no. nothing. Okay. Um, Nobody had braces where I live. This is, you know, how girl child is about socioeconomics, kind of. It's well, yeah. And there's like braces the pa- there's are like one the, of those the, things. The, there's like the passage where she's talking about how she knows people from where she is by their teeth, you know. Yeah, and I did not know a single person person with braces, and so now if I meet someone who casually talks about braces like you just did, now I know. I know everything about your life. No, <laughs> no, but it it is an indication to me that that there is that our histories are probably very different. Yeah, no, because a lot of people have braces, but those are expensive. They yeah. cost as much as uh, maybe two cars, depending on where you live. Yeah, no, I mean, I had the headgear, I had everything, and like you know, you did. You had to wear that thing on your head. Yes. But I, I didn't wear. I, I was supposed to wear it to school, but I couldn't. I couldn't do it, so I'd only wear it uh-huh. at night. But I did wear it religiously at night, every night when I slept, and it hurt like hell. Oh, it but seems kind of my te- arcane to me. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if they still do it, but my teeth. Uh, I should say, my orthodontist was really. Uh, he was really hardcore. He would like left the braces on my teeth forever. I wanted them off, and he wouldn't budge. And I thank him for it now because my teeth are uh, really straight. Well, and that's why you can fall asleep in a dentist chair. You that might are be pre-traumatized. <laughs> right. Right. That might be it. I don't know. I just have never had a problem with that. Or with like, you know, shots or needles or anything. I don't care, you know. Um, wow. So, okay. So where were you when you were having your first kiss? Like, where were you living? Were you? Oh, that's, I did live outside of Reno okay. for a little while and that was there. Okay, so did you live in a trailer park, and are you working autobiographically, um, you know, in, in Girl Child, like, really directly? I started out that way, and I lived in a lot of different trailers. I, I didn't live in a house, really, until I was 15 or 16. But I wasn't living in a trailer park on the night of my first kiss. But um, there is a town outside of Reno called Sun Valley that was once in the Guinness Book of World Records for having more trailers than any city in the world and it's still very much like that it's that you crest this hill coming out of reno and you see thousands of trailers oh my god okay so what's that like i mean like when what's reno like i've spent a little bit of time there and And i know someone from reno is gonna send me a lot of hate mail one day but (laughs) reno is probably because of vegas i'm sure it's it's struggling i've been there a couple times in the last year and then i'm going again in a month and i i think it was always probably desperate but it's 
so much worse. When I was there in the fall, the street hustlers have, have, there's tripled or something and they're everywhere. And so it just, what do you mean? Like, 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 like hookers or everything What drugs, everything. Um, I was speaking of prostitutes. Okay. So many prostitutes. Oh my God. Like pushy prostitutes. Yeah. Like, like, <laughs> it's hard. It's very hard. And I have family there still. Um, it's tricky. It's, it, it, I, it makes me sad, but I'm going to, I'm going to go speak at UNR in a month. And, and there's readers there. And maybe when I was growing up, I didn't know these people. So wait, a fabulous you're, you're going to be eight and a half months store. pregnant. You're going to be eight and a half months pregnant speaking at a UNR. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that funny? Well, you never know. You could go into labor during the uh, presentation. <laughs> Don't say that. Don't, this, I will drive across the border. Um, the baby will not be born in Reno. <laughs> On a casino floor. Yeah. Um, okay, so talk a bit more about uh, growing up. You know, like you were a bright kid in this environment. And like what – I don't know. Like what's that like? And, and at what point did you have a sense that you wanted to maybe leave or, or do something different, you know, with your life? Like how early, yeah, did, that, how early did that – how early did that set in for you? That is my question. I don't know the answer to. But so, yeah, the part of Rory Dawn that, that still – is my part in a way. I mean, so much changed over the years of writing it, but she's really her own person, except for being, and I really hate the term academically gifted. I just want to say for the record, and I don't know what, there's no better term. I don't know what it means, but being that, especially in a culture where it's not, it's only valued in this amorphous sense, not in any practical sense. was pretty awful. It was pretty terrible. Um, and a lot of that is in the book. And then Rory does magical things with it that I didn't do. But um, I didn't, I left home when I was 15. And then I was just a feral for about six years. Where did, where did I, you go? Where did you go? You left home from I, where? You left Reno? I left, I left, I was in the Bay Area. You know, we moved around a lot. So I left my parents and got a job. I dropped out of school and uh, really focused on partying. And then... um, What does that mean? Oh, I was a mess. It's amazing I survived, really, honestly. Like what? (laughs) Honestly. Hallucinogens, cocaine, everything? Oh, no, not cocaine. I never liked it. Um, But I drank a lot and really tried to put myself in dangerous situations. I, I didn't think I was, but looking back, it's obvious. Um, like what? Like, to, like, like hitchhiking? And like, what, what do you mean? Oh, man. I lived in a squat with probably 30 people, 30 grown-ups, you know. And um, uh, my favorite thing about that place in my memory, not really my favorite, that was sarcastic, is we all shared this one bathroom that had been built outside by the landlord. There was a landlord there. And um, <laughs> he, would, he would, the landlord would sit in his house and watch porn in the day, and then you would go in and talk to him, and he wouldn't turn down the porn or <laughs> turn away from the porn. He would just talk to you while you're saying, hey, here's my $40 or whatever. Anyway, so there was that guy. But the bathroom 
if it wasn't ventilated or proper in any sense, was full of slugs, giant slugs. Oh, my God. Just however many you're thinking of, there's more. Yeah. You could not step through. And But that was the kind of situation that I would be in at that age and not think I should not, I should leave. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, no, it's, it's amazing when you're, when you're, I don't know, teenager to like early 20s. That little yeah. that little pocket of time, it is amazing what you will tolerate. You know, like totally. I would have done anything. Yeah. There was a period of my life where like nothing phased me. I could live anywhere. I could sleep on a dirty, you know, couch with cigarette butts, and yeah, I didn't care. You know? like, yep. Um, so how did you eat? You know, like I, I can't imagine your parents were supporting you when you did this. You just sort of like launched, oh no, you launched at fifteen, and you you were what working odd jobs or? No, I got a job because I was smart, right? So I could type. But then it mattered how fast you could type, and I could type 110 words a minute or something. And um, I got a job at an answering service where you they used to. I don't think they really have these anymore. Maybe for very fancy people, but you know, taking messages for doctors and things. And I think I made a little more than minimum wage. And honestly, I would just eat Taco Bell and food from 7-Eleven, just crap. I'm just amazed I can grow a human child. <laughs> I was going to say, right? Uh, yeah. The, the human, but the human body is resilient. Yes. Yes. Honestly. So you were working in San Francisco, or where, like thereabouts, at an answer. I was service? in East San Jose, which is pretty hardcore neighborhood. But I, again, like you were saying, I wasn't phased, and I was ready to die at any moment. So, of course, nothing hor- too horrible happened to me. Wow. Okay, and so. A squat with 30 people, most of whom were significantly older than you. Um, yeah, and what, they what, were all pretty desperate, mostly people like undocumented workers and stuff. Oh, my God. And so, like, what does this squat look like? It's like a big house or is it like a like a warehouse? It's just a normal property. You would drive by and never know. There was a house in the front, and then there was a, a storage shed. Like, uh, I think... I don't know how much they have these on the East Coast. A metal little shed where you keep your tools, supposedly. And there were bunk beds in there. And there was a little tiny one-room building that a couple lived in. And then there was the bathroom. I lived in this tiny trailer that was back there with broken windows. <laughs> and um, and there was a, a hood. Um, goes on the back of a truck. I feel like we're playing trades. You know, those goes over the bed of a truck those little, you add them on. Like a carry-on? I don't know what that's called. It's, it's like a cover, and it turns your truck into like a wagon. Anyway, yeah, there was yeah, one yeah. of those on the ground, and a couple of guys would sleep in there, and then people slept in the garage, and people came and went. There's a couple kids. Jesus. And so did you... But have... some of the people were lovely. I mean, I don't know. Some, it, you know, it was never, so caring. Was, were you ever in danger? Did you ever, like, get help? Like, yeah. Help? Yeah. All the time. All the time. Like what? Like people, like guys trying to make moves on you and stuff? Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously it looks like you're just an ideal target because apparently no one will miss you. Oh my God. <laughs> so what, 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 were you in touch with your family at this point or were you just kind of like MIA? I probably talked to them once a month or something. Okay, so they didn't. Uh, they knew you were alive. Yeah, my brothers had seen – my brothers – a couple of my brothers had visited me there – and when we talk about it now, we we talk about how they they didn't grow up that differently from me just ten years earlier, and they were worried, but it wasn't alarming to them because of everything they lived through. 
So now as adults, we think, what was wrong with us that no. we didn't? All I'm thinking of is like my daughter, like leaving home at yeah. 13. <laughs> Just being like, oh my totally. God. <laughs> I try to remember that. I try to see these kids and think that person that I'm thinking of as a child is so much more capable than I, than I can imagine now. Right. You know? Well, that's the thing. You look at somebody who's 15 now, and they, I mean, they look so young. They look to me, you know. And tiny. They just look tiny, and yeah. I'm sure they're not smart, and that's totally wrong. That's totally. Because I remember when I was 15, I felt very together, you know? Like, I could do, <laughs> I, I felt like I could do a hell of a lot more than I was allowed to do, you know, in terms of being able to handle myself, and I think I was partially right. Yes, I think that's, that's, well, they talk about this in child sociology classes, but whether we keep our kids young for too long in the West, or especially in America, how we're invested in that. And it is tricky. Well, and it very much... Kids, kids. Yeah, and it depends on, it depends on the, well, yeah, and like, it depends on the kid and where their head is at, you know, and how much, you know, how much intelligence they have and what they're bringing to the table. But, you know, I, I always think about how, or I often think about how, uh, the term teenager is rel- is very much new. I mean, it didn't even really get invented until what, like the 1950s? So it's not like... That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, it's not like... I mean, the, the whole thing with teenagers and the cars and the, you know, going to the drive-in or whatever, that was invented mid-20th century. You know, before then, it was like, I don't know what the hell they did. They went to work, you know? Went to work. Got <laughs> married. Yeah. yeah. That was it. So... Um, you lived this like feral period, I guess that's what we're calling yes. it, your feral years. And that was like a five or six year period. Right. And then I moved a bunch, I mean, I moved a lot of times and then I, I became an actor and I was in Los Angeles and was an actor. I, it really feels like when I look back on it, that I woke up in Los Angeles with this life that I had somehow acquired and a few years after that wake up, I started listening to Pacifica Radio. This sounds so, uh, so, I don't know, cliche to me or something. And listening to Noam Chomsky and Michael Parenti and these people and decided I didn't want to do commercials and sell things I didn't believe in. And I quit and I started going to community college because I had dropped out of high school and that's what you do. And now I teach at that community college where I went to. And from there I went to USC, and from there I went to Columbia. Holy shit. Okay, so wait, you got to Los Angeles, and you just... How did you get to Los Angeles and start acting? I was acting in, in, the, in the Bay Area, I, barely. And I... I don't know, what do you do? I was 20, I think. When, I was 20 when I moved to L.A., and I went down and met with agencies and got an agent, and then I moved there. <laughs> and um, so wait a minute. I once wait, wait tried minute, to write an essay about. Sorry, go ahead. No, I mean for somebody who's living a feral existence, who dropped out of high school at fifteen, you, it sounds like you were pretty self-assured. I mean, how did you get down to LA and get meetings with agencies? Uh, yeah, I don't know if it was self-assured. It's really about having nothing to lose, honestly, because I, I was going to say, I wrote an essay about this that turned out so terrible. No one will ever read it. But I shared it with a friend of mine, and he said, there's nothing in here about how you're afraid of being rejected. And I, and I honestly thought, well, because it never, I didn't, nothing mattered. It didn't matter. So there's that, you know, it's just doing the next thing. So I looked Back, in, back then, you look at the phone book and you find the agencies. And I went down one day because it was all I could afford 
to leave my job for. And I met with six agencies or something. And and then I moved down there. And on my first audition, my first audition, I got jumped into the union, which is all problematic as well. But I got really lucky and uh, and kept going for a couple of years. What do you mean you got jumped? You got jumped into the union? What did you say? <laughs> it's called being. It's called being Taft Hartley, which which is problematic. Because it means the people that are taking the regular steps to get into the union can be, you jump over them, basically, because a producer or a director really wants you for the job. So what they do is basically pay to get you in the union because they have to have a union, a union talent. So. Oh, right, right, right. You have to be, okay. And so you got, you got a commercial on your first audition? Yes, I did. Which pays well. I mean, if you get a commercial, like I have... Sometimes. Sometimes, but I mean, if you get like a national commercial spot, I don't yeah. think a lot of people don't know this, but like, that's like a six figure payday. Oh yeah. If you get, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think about that girl who does all those car insurance commercials and how she has a sweet life. Yeah. And, and you, you're working essentially like, you know, 10 days a year and you're making, you know, a quarter of a million dollars a year or more. I mean, it's insane. You know, these like, like the guy who does like the Verizon, can you hear me now? He's making a shit. Yeah. Up. That guy's that. He's loaded. But these a lot of years probably not getting that and you go on a lot of auditions where nothing happens right so. right but i mean you know if it's working and you're making a living doing it it's a sweet existence you work 10 days a year and make good money. yeah so and, and, and it's fun it's fun being on the set you work with you're creating something with people that that is fun even if it's a car insurance commercial even if it is, and that's the that's the tricky part that makes it hard to leave, I think, because you're still working creatively as a team. Okay, so you're doing that for how many years? Eight years I did that. Holy shit. Okay, and so you made a living. You did you did well. I always had a day job, but yeah, I did well. I okay. did good. Okay, and uh, did you have aspirations to be like the next Jessica Lange? No. No, you didn't want to work in the movies Never or anything? I had aspirations at all. <laughs> I never did. No. I just wanted to get the next job, you know. Um, and there was there for many of those years, I would go on three or four auditions a day. It was wild, just a wild, busy life. And what does that mean? Like you're sitting in some room, and then they just call you in, and you read like two lines, and then they say next. Is that like really has? Is it that much of a yeah. inhumane experience <laughs> most of the time? Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. That's that sums it up. And you're in the waiting room with potentially diabolical people, and there's all these head games being played. Maybe not unlike that, uh, too unlike being in the grad school. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and did you ever, did you ever, uh, I mean, you must have seen a lot of the same faces on these auditions. I, yeah, I suppose I did when I was finally in my, in my little, I'd found my little corner of what I did well, which at that time was this Gen X thing. Basically, I didn't wear wash my hair and wore junky clothes, and it really worked. So what? Like what? Uh, so did you ever see any like famous, like future famous actors, like in, early in their careers on these commercials? Like were you ever like sitting in a room with Natalie Portman or something? And later? not, uh, not well. I <laughs> this is embarrassing. I probably dated more than you know. I. I was very free, and I now I'll turn on the TV and go, oh, I went out with that guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
that who, that who, kind of thing. Who is like? Give us a name. Come on. Who did you? Oh get? no, I will. I cannot do that. But my husband gets a kick out of it. You can't. But it's like somebody significantly famous. Um, yeah. But so my husband will say, "Oh, so I proxy fucked so and so," you know, and he <laughs> thankfully, thankfully has a charming attitude about it. Okay, so play, just play along here. A, a television star, a movie star, like let us let us try to at least guess who this person is. Oh no! But if you guess, I can't tell you That's because okay. That's people okay. are married now. People have children, and you know, yeah. not me. My husband's cool, but I don't know what other people's partners are like. Well, you just dated. Who cares? Like, you know, this was youth. You yeah, were free. you think, right? <laughs> so a television star? People, someone someone who's got like a television series? Might be, yeah, might be. So, so coy. I, I want names. Oh, come <laughs> on. This is somebody's life. It's, I don't know. It's, if, I don't know. I've never talked about this in, anyway. You're no. not going to air this part. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you go. I'll let you go. It's my job to press. I know people listening want to know. Uh, yeah, that's true. People want to know. Absolutely. Um, uh, so okay, so you're doing these commercials. You're dating future movie stars left and right. We're all desperate. Nobody seemed like they were getting famous. You know, we're all just right. going on our ad- auditions and then going and drinking afterwards. It's what you do. Okay, so and then you get to USC and Columbia, which seems like an unlikely scenario yeah. considering where you came from. So, uh, talk about a little bit about how that happened. And like, what, what prompted it? You decided I'm going to go get educated. Like, when did that flow? When, when did that, when did that occur to you? <laughs> um, it was when I started thinking about the life I was living and what I was selling, you know, soda pop and, you know, things I didn't believe in. So I decided no one in my family had gone to college. And I, I went down to the community college and enrolled and I really didn't want to be there. I had the, all the same pains from being academically gifted Especially to be in a room with working class kids like me, and and what was hard for me was getting my ass in the chair. The work was not hard, and so then I felt guilty and weird, and um, and then I took a creative writing class, and it really, really was like falling in love. I really felt like that was why I was there, and I asked that professor where I should apply to transfer to, and he said USC because Amy Bender is teaching there and I had Percival Everett there and Vicki Foreman is another great professor there. And so I applied and I got a full ride to USC, which still surprises me. How did you get a full ride? I had good grades and I wrote a, probably I wrote a sappy essay about growing up hard. Wow. That's a huge stroke of luck. I mean, you know, you, you you obviously did some of the work on the front end, but like that's, I don't know. I just, it's amazing, and maybe you would agree, like, when you look back, like, these things in our life, um, that's a huge moment, you know, to get that. Yeah, I remember it really well. It was, there was, I was living in a house with a bunch of people, and no one was home except one of my roommate's mom, Her his mom was visiting from Sweden and spoke no English, <laughs> and I made her hug me. Oh. <laughs> I just was kind of jumping up and down, so she she gave me a hug. Oh, oh, that's a sweet story. And of all schools to wind up at, because I, I did my graduate work at USC, and like, for oh, somebody, you did, yeah. For so for somebody who uh, came up the way you did in like the trailer parks outside of Reno or whatever, to suddenly be at USC, which 
um, is home to uh, kind of like the children of privilege or a lot of children of privilege. Yeah. Uh, what I really think without that, without that incubator of being with all those kids, and I was older than them, I, I don't know if Girl Child would have come into shape. I, I know it's part of that pressure. I was having, what's a culture shock, you know? Yeah. Well, and then Columbia too. I mean, these are both like bastions of, like, I don't know. I'm, uh, and tell me if you feel, yeah. tell me, tell me how you think about this, but like, not only when it comes to you, like educate or the education system and what schools, there was just a front page story about this in the Washington post the other day about George Washington university and how like the money to lead of the East coast send their kids there. And it's like these little hives of privilege, you know? Yeah. Um, and it really is like an inside game. And I think the same thing is true to at least to some extent with regard to literature and publishing. Um, yeah. It's the same people in the same schools hiring each other and publishing each other. And usually they're well financed by family money or I don't know. It just it just seems like, um, you know, not all the time, but a lot of the time kind of that sort of. I agree. Game. It's you, really tricky. So how did you how did you feel when suddenly you're at USC and you're walking around campus with all these kids and they've got like you know brand new Mercedes like SUVs and you know like yeah I um I I really was in shock I I quickly made um, friends who who honestly just liked to party so that I could hang out with people. And not feel totally insane. I made probably four friends in my time there. And um, what were their backgrounds? Yeah. I mean, was it like were you were you selecting based on socioeconomics, or were you just selecting people who seemed nice? Like, did, were any of your friends like the children of like movie directors or anything? <laughs> like, no, but everybody had everybody was pretty privileged. The, the kind of the kind of upper class lifestyle that where you're taught to say that you're middle class. You know, this is a tr this is a thing that happens. People people will say that they're middle class and really they're upper class. Yeah. <laughs> but so yeah, they were all they just all weren't agog about the university or they weren't in sororities and you know things like that. A little more feet on the ground kind of. Right. Everybody was pretty smart though. Well, you know, and it's like I don't know. It's complicated too because you know somebody who is born into privilege, it's not their fault. You know, I have friends, oh, truly. I, I have friends who are born into like the most insane privilege and they're great people. And, you know, I think in some ways, yeah. sometimes it can put you out of touch. Uh, I don't know. I have, I have very complicated feelings about this because, uh, like my own experience, uh, I'm like, I feel like I'm a step, I don't know. I can kind of relate to the way that you came up in the sense that my dad was the first person in his family to go to college. So I'm, I'm like a, I'm like a generation away, and my grandparents were very working class. My grandmother had an eighth grade education. Um, my yeah. you know, it's like that kind of thing. My grandfather was a butcher, uh, and so I saw that. But then my dad went to college, and he wound up doing really well. And so I saw that, and so I feel like I have like a vantage on a wide span. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like I have a foot in both worlds, and so. Um, I find that uh, pr privilege and money often has this weird, like, amnesiac effect. And it's one of the great uh, 
puzzles of my adult life. Like I, I'm very fixated on like the way class works and the way, and I think you are too. I mean, it sounds like I am. So it's yeah. like, I, I want to talk about that. It's like, you know, somebody who has, uh, and, and it's, it, you can be a person who has come from a really difficult upbringing or who was somebody who was once really poor. And then there are people who were once in that situation and then they, they get wealthy or wealthier and they forget, it seems like what it was like to struggle or they detach themselves from that, or they turn themselves off to that kind of struggling. And it drives me crazy. <laughs> um, it, yeah. But I think that there's some kind of amnesia about luck. I mean, in all these, in, in all the hives you were talking about, um, Somebody, uh, not everybody was, somebody wasn't born into it. Somebody like your dad took, took a step toward it. And I, I always am thinking about luck. And you asked about how did I want more than where I came from. And that is a question I really have. I, I don't understand why I'm living a life so different than my dearest cousin who still lives outside of Reno and is really struggling and I have I cannot find out the answer to that. I mean, I left, but I didn't I didn't leave into a better circumstance. But I did leave. I stepped sideways for a while. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, luck is another thing that I'm fixated on because uh, there's nothing that frustrates me more. Ugh, it's so it's hard to even get the words out of my mouth because I get frustrated when people say there's no such thing as luck. Uh, yeah. Because I feel like that is often. Uh, code for I did it all myself. I deserve it all. It was all me, 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 me. I'm the one, you know. But then there's yep. al there's also this quote from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson that uh, I always that always has stuck to me, where he said, "Small men believe in luck, and you know, big men believe in cause and effect." And I I, I sort of puzzle over that, and I think there has to be a middle ground in there. I, a lot of times, people will say, "With all the success, girl child has had," people will say to me. Um, how much I deserve it. And I say, well, there's so many lucky things had to happen. So-and-so had to decide to pick my book out of their giant stack of books they had to read, you know. And um, and people really want to insist that it's because of my own talent and all of this, which I, I'm not saying to completely remove that, but that that denies the the talent of so many people that I know whose writing is not being super appreciated right right so it can't just be that right it's like you know you have to be uh super super lucky and you know i i'm like a i have a kind of a guilty catholic like psychological bearing you know like where I, and i'll often feel bad for anything that good that happens to me <laughs> um yeah you know not in too melodramatic of a way but like i feel and i i've sort of glad I feel like, oh my God, that something good happened to me. Like I have to make sure I pay this forward. Like I don't deserve this or whatever. And, um, uh, or, or you know what I'm saying? Right. And, and that's, how yeah. I, that's how I felt mm -hmm. when my, when my book got published, it was like, oh my God, because mm -hmm. all I could think about was how hard it was. It was really, you know, it was a struggle for me. And then I think about all these people out there who are very gifted, who just are not getting a break. And why me? Yeah. Why not me? Getting a break. You know? And I know I, yeah. I got an agent and I went through the hoops and I did, what you're supposed to do and persisted, but it's still, there's still luck, you know, and I was able to, you know, I had, um, you know, I was able to go to school and I was able to find time to write and I've been very lucky in that way. So. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of that thing about getting jumped into the union. I feel like it also with the thing you think about more, maybe as, 
an actor is you you because you're being rejected so often at least i feel like you should be thinking about how you have no idea why you're being rejected one of my favorite examples someone told me is you don't know if you look like the person who flipped off the casting agent in traffic that morning you know yeah so you can't guess why you're being rejected, and that's comforting. And I think that there's also a the hidden element to why you're being accepted. I don't know. Meaning what? Like mean like that? You know, I mean, I think I get what you're saying because, let's say you submit your manuscript for your novel, or your agent submits it to you know any number of editors at the publishing houses in New York. You know, some, right. I, I think about this like you have to catch the right person at the right time in their life. Uh, yeah, in it's the a, right mood. In the right mood, exactly. All they're these, hungry. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Right. All, all these different. Yeah. I mean, all these different factors play in, and I think about that too when it comes to reviews. Somebody gets your book yes. to review, and they're having a shitty week, or they're exactly. they're agitated, or whatever it is, you know. And maybe the fact that they're agitated is actually a stroke of luck for you because your book is an angry screed, you know, like that. Uh, you know, it, it you never right. know what the circumstances are, but it's uh, you know, it's definitely a huge amount of luck comes into whether or not things go well. And it is interesting to contemplate how some people seem to have a hell of a lot of luck. <laughs> exactly. And why, Yeah. you know, so you mentioned that uh girl child has done really well. Like, what do you mean by that? Has it been like selling really, I mean, really well, or you just mean it's been really well received critically or both? It's gotten so much attention and I didn't, I had no, I just thought it would come out and sell a couple thousand copies maybe. And I was so happy about that, you know? I was perfectly happy. And then it's been more than a year since the hardcover came out, and I'm people still want to talk about it, and that really surprises me. I, I'm still surprised every day that it's gotten attention. And the, and the publishing house has said that it's sold really well. I, I don't have a way to judge that, because I feel like all we hear about that sells well is you know the the wizard kid Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's you know? there's different there's different paradigms or whatever. Yeah. You know, like different scales. Yeah. But I'm I, I'm but, I need to have some publishing people on this show and ask them what it you know what is the number yeah. you know what is a number for a debut work of literary fiction like how do you know yeah at, at what point do we say this was a huge success is it ten thousand copies is it five is it twenty who knows you know at some point last year my something happened that there was a there was a review in the New York Times and then there was another one and I was totally shell-shocked I couldn't understand what was happening at all and then with the second one I read it and I said to my husband this seems good right good yeah and he said good yeah he's also shell-shocked and then I wrote back to my publicist and said good great thank you and she she wrote back right away and said I don't think you understand what's happening And then my agent called and said, this does not happen. And I I don't, I think without that, I would just have been numb. I was starting to get really numb. Just the the fact that you had a good review in the Times or that you had two reviews in the Times? I think that the second one was so good. Yeah, and it was a second one. Yeah. Right, right. Well, shit, that's awesome. And so um, do you have another book that you're working on? I'm working on a memoir. Oh, you are? Okay, yeah. You have a good memoir. Yeah. I can feel it. <laughs> well, you've, you've heard some, some, some of it, but yeah. Okay, so um, 
let's let's talk a little bit more about uh, you getting edu- you know your education and writing girl child that process like you were writing it while you were an undergraduate some of the pages are from when I was an undergraduate, but mostly I wrote it. It was my graduate thesis. Okay, so you went. You went. Okay, you, what did you get your degree in at USC? In creative writing, English creative writing. Okay, and then you went to Columbia for your graduate for your masters. Yep, I went back to that same first creative writing teacher I had. His name is Jim Crusoe. He's written a number of books, and I said, "Where should I go to grad school?" <laughs> it's the same thing. Oh wait, wait did, then, you, did you go to Santa Monica College? I went to yeah. Do you know Jim? Well, yeah, I used to teach in the English department there. So. Oh, that's where I teach. Oh no, shit. Okay, well there you have it. Yeah. So, so, wait, but you teach there now? I thought you live. You're living in the Bay Area. I teach online. I'm very formidable online. Oh, look at you. Okay. Much less scary in person. So Jim, <laughs> Jim recommended Columbia. Yeah, I, I was Columbia or Montana, and he said. He said. Well, I don't want to offend Montana. Damn, it's hard not to offend people. He said, they're not going to know what to do with you in Montana. Go to Columbia. And I really wanted to work with Ben Marcus because I admire his work so much. Okay, so you studied with Ben. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, And did you get a full ride to go to Columbia, too? They don't give full rides. I got a half a ride, which I guess is... But still, do. it's a ride. You got some, yeah. some kind of ride. That's expensive school. They still have a magnificent... A glowing amount of student loans, but oh, okay. Everybody listening, buy her book. This woman's got student loans. To pay off. <laughs> no, I think more to the point is that I hate that we have to buy time to do our art and our culture. I hate it. I'm sure you hate it, but I I don't regret having those student loans and that I will have them for 30 more years. You know. Well, you never know. You never know how long it'll last. But I mean, if it's something like you say, if you, you had this falling in love experience, and if this is what you want to do. I don't think you can let something like money stand in the way. You know, you have to go. I agree. You have to go get it. And to have an opportunity with a half ride to go study at Columbia, I mean, come on. It's Ivy League. So Yeah, it's Ivy League. <laughs> so, yeah. okay. So you did that, okay. and then you're writing uh, – this is a crazy – you've had a crazy like life. This memoir is going to be big. So you, uh, <laughs> so you go to Columbia. You're working on Girl Child. And then uh, how does it go? Like, are you trying to get an agent? Did somebody help you get an agent? Like, I'm, Oh, man. Let, let me... Just, I don't like to – you know, when I was a, an actor and then I got jumped into the union and then I would try to make new actor friends and they would say, how did you get your SAG card, the Screen Actors Guild card? And then I would go, oh, this is – because the story people want is I got rejected a lot of times or I tried and tried to get whatever you need and finally I got it. And that's not what happened, so it's not that awesome of a story. But the same thing happened for me finding my agent. I, I made two friends at Columbia, and one of them knew my agent, and my agent was looking for new people, and I sent him six, the 60 pages I had of Girl Child. And that was it? And that was it. Who's your agent? Do people say that? My agent is Bill Clegg. Okay, well, shit. That's a great agent. <laughs> Holy shit. He's a fantastic agent. Oh I adore God. him. Yeah. So see, this but is see, that's not a good story, right? Doesn't that make you kind of mad? Well, but that's, <laughs> that's, but it, you know what? It doesn't because Are you I mean, pissed off? no, I mean, no, I, well, because here's the thing. It's just a confirmation of the hive theory. I mean, you know, when you're mixing in those circles, yeah. that's how it happens. You get in the right place. Yeah, with I the got right, something. You got it. That's it. Okay. So Bill Clegg signs you up and then he gets, I did you. get rejected. I have to say, I, Two agents had approached my friend at the same time because he had two books out, and he's great. Who's and, he? Um, Who's he? Who's he? 
Thorn Thorn Keith Hillsbury. He's he wrote a book called What, what? We Do Is Secret. What's his name? Thorn. His name is three names. Thorn Keith Hillsbury. So he's clearly. I mean, he sounds like he's from a family that owns polo fields or something. But no, <laughs> it might be. But that's not his life at all. That's. I think that's why we made friends because we were at Columbia, and also he doesn't write very linear fiction. And the program was pretty. A lot of the people in the program were writing pretty traditionally, so we kind of moved toward each other. Right. Um, but so two agents approached him at the same time, and one was a woman from a boutique agency. And when I sent them both the pages that I had, I thought, I thought I'd maybe hear from her with some advice. And then she wrote and asked me if I would please write more traditionally, and she would love to take me on. And I said, no, <laughs> because I'd, I don't know where I got the gumption to tell her, no, I wouldn't do that. And I was writing the story with the way I was writing it. And then I thought, well, I'll never hear from Bill because he's with William Morris. I'll never hear from him at all if she wasn't interested. And then about a month later, I heard from him. And what did he say? He said that he loved it. And could he see more? And then we met and... And then he was my agent, and I adore him. Okay, so you have Bill Clegg as your agent. You're in graduate school. When did you finish the book? Oh, well, we shopped it about a year after I graduated, and it didn't. It wasn't finished for then. All the mystery goes. All the magic is, leaves the story because it wasn't finished for about. We edited for five or six years. Holy shit! Okay, that's a long time. My life kind of fell apart a couple times, and um, how so? Uh, one of my brothers, one of my brothers suffered a traumatic brain injury, oh, and my family we all became caregivers suddenly, and it was pretty awful. This was four years ago. Oh my god! What, and, what, um, may I ask what happened? He, yeah, he, he. It's kind of complicated. He he has Hep C. He was having stomach bleeds because he drinks like someone I'm related to and went into a coma, which had happened before and suffered an anoxic insult, like a stroke and lost much of his skills. He was a computer programmer before and about 20 years of memory. Oh my God. So, so that took a lot of energy and focus. And then Partly because of that, I um, I became sober. I got sober and got my shit together. Yeah, that'll do it. Finished right? my book. I'm, yeah, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get sober now. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. You have one brain. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. Okay, so you're taking care. You moved back out west to take care of your brother. I was already out here. I was visiting, and I was going to move around a lot. Yeah. And um, and I I wrote about this in an essay in Harper's Bazaar. Um, I had met my husband, but he was just some guy that I was going to hang out with. And he's 10 years younger than me, and I wasn't taking anything very seriously. My brother got sick. Suddenly I realized I had this amazing partner who didn't run away when, you know, I would, for a time I thought maybe my brother would live with me. He stays here about a quarter of the month now. And, you know, everything. He's very sick. There's vomit and shit and me, uh, I was a ter I was a mess, and then I realized I had this uh, pretty much a husband, and I got sober and we got married. And that was it. Here we are. I finished my book because I 
started to take my life seriously. Wow. And is this all going to be in the memoir? Some of I'm it? hoping that I want to write a memoir up to when my brother got sick because I'd really like to write a memoir about caregiving since most of us are going to have to do that more than before, more than any other generation. Yeah. And usually with our parents, right? But I feel like because it's my brother and we have no parents, it's just been us kids figuring this out. I, I don't know. I think there's... Are both of your parents, are you both of your parents, no, your, your father's no longer with us, but has your mother passed away too? Yeah, she died when I, 15, when I was 15. That's why I moved out pretty much. Oh, okay. My God, what a life. Ah. Well, uh, it's where, I mean, write it down, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm very impressed and um, I'm glad that, you know, you were, you've been able to transcend a lot of this stuff and to do such good work and I'm grateful for the chance to get to talk with you. And uh, I'm very happy for you with the, uh, you know, with the impending arrival of this child. That's very, very cool. Thank you. Um, so, yeah. So best of luck with everything. And, and thanks once again. Thank you, Brad. All right, guys. There you go. That is Tupelo Hassman. Isn't she great? Go get her novel. It's called Girl Child. It's available now in paperback from Picador. You can find her online at TupeloHassman.com. She's on Tumblr. She's on Facebook. Uh, etc. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com and don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app, the official app of this show, available free for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best way to listen to this program. Uh, new episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can organize your favorites. You can access the full archives and premium content as well. So please go get the app. Uh, closing thoughts. Can you hear me kind of talking quietly? It's because my daughter's asleep. That's what's happening. Uh, otherwise, Fiona Apple, uh, my favorite, my favorite song off the new album. What is it? I don't know. Uh, uh, maybe that song, anything we want. I like that one. That's a nice one. I like the song werewolf. I like hot knife. It's impossible to say. It's a terrible question. Why did I ask myself that question? Please remember that Bach began his musical career at age 15 as a boy soprano, and that Jean-Paul Sartre, in his most productive years, drank a quart or more of alcohol per day, along with a variety of amphetamines, aspirin, barbiturates, and a minimum of uh, two packs of cigarettes a day. That is all for now. Thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for giving me your attention for a little while and uh, for spending some time with me and uh, someone else in your head. This world is bullshit. That's all I want to say. <laughs> it's complete bullshit. Just go with yourself. Do you hear me? Just go with yourself. Yeah.